This is episode 171. We're picking right back up where we left off in the last episode with Dr. James Curtis. If you haven't listened to that yet, go back and download episode 170. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Okay, so now the next group of considerations um, that I think could potentially influence functional swallowing outcomes um, and thus the need for standardization relates to swallowing protocols that are being completed by our patients during the fees. And so here I'm talking specifically about things related to the instructions that we're giving patients for swallowing, the number of swallowing trials, bolus volumes, consistencies, and the type of contrasts that we're using during our fees to enhance visualization. So in terms of instructions, we know that asking an individual to hold a bolus in their mouth might influence already swallowing physiology, maybe even um, respiratory swallow coordination. And we know that verbal cubing, so having someone hold a bolus in their mouth and then we tell them when to swallow is going to influence measures of swallowing physiology and respiratory swallow coordination. And of course, it's swallowing physiology that leads to functional swallowing outcomes. So we should be pretty standardized in terms of when we are or not including a bolus holding posture and the use of verbal cues. And it's not to say that these are bad, but we should be knowing why we're doing it and being very standard in terms of when we are or are not doing it. You know, so I know a lot of people use a bolus hold, maybe with or without a, a verbal cue, because we want to assess things like oral bolus control. Can someone hold a liquid in their mouth without letting it spill into the pharynx, let's say? But we also know there's variability and people have to spill on purpose, volitionally. So it's, you know, it's determining why exactly it is we're doing what we're doing and then interpreting it within that context. The number of trials we know can certainly influence functional swallowing outcomes. And this has been studied specifically as it relates to, well, probably other aspects, but it's definitely been studied as as it relates to the detection of penetration and aspiration. So there was a really interesting study that my colleague James Borders told me about um, that I then reviewed um, that was published by Bayesian and colleagues in 2014. And in this study, Um, The authors concluded that fees protocols having a limited number of swallowing trials, and they define limited as three to four, can underestimate aspiration risk. And what they did in this study is they they sampled, I think it was something like 85 patients with dysphagia. I think about half of them had a neurodegenerative disease, the other had had, um, had a neck cancer. And they gave them 10 trials of a 10 ml thin liquid bolus, and then separately 10 trials of a... I don't know, 10 ml pudding bolus. I want to say 5 ml, actually. I want to say 10, but it might have been 5. And they, they looked to see 
they identified the sensitivity of detecting aspiration with each number of trial. And essentially what they identified was that it was only once we got to about five trials that we had an 82% sensitivity rate for detecting aspiration. Meaning that if we give someone just a few trials of liquid, we might not be detecting people who are actually aspirating um, and that we need to be giving them multiple trials. And I think that this becomes very evident when you maybe rewind the podcast back to when I was talking about normal variability and we had some swine protocols that were three trials, others that were nine trials, others that were 30 trials, right? And so the number of trials that we are giving a patient for a given consistency, like liquid or pudding, it's going to influence the frequency with which we detect penetration and aspiration. And when we think about a gold standard evaluation or a screening technique, we really look for numbers around that 80% sensitivity mark or greater. And so, and so if we are in fact treating fees like the gold standard for functional swallowing outcomes, we should be giving them a sufficient number of trials to actually detect what it is we are maybe trying to assess, which is in this case, penetration aspiration in addition to uh, pharyngeal residue. Why, where do you think we decided that like three was the magic number? You know, I think there's a lot of different reasons. I don't think they're bad reasons, right? We are advocating for fees. There is, depending on the work environment that you're in, there's a, a clinic flow that you're worried about. There's, you know, we are setting the patient up, describing the evaluation, inserting the scope. Maybe we're doing these pre-swallowing tasks. We're looking at pharyngeal squeeze and airway closure, right? There's a lot that we are doing. And in fact, there was a really interesting, not really interesting, but there was, there was a fees, there was a survey done on Facebook of people performing fees. And we're talking about what's the average length of that evaluation. And it's anywhere between 10 to 20 minutes. And that's not including the prep time. That's not including writing up our report. And so people are in time crunches, right? And I think Maybe it has to do with our perception, right? Maybe it's, it is our perception that, oh, this is what their swallow looks like. Great. <laughs> like, I don't need to keep going. I, I saw their swallow and right, so going right, on. Right. So it's probably a combination of workflow, maybe our understanding of swallowing physiology and variability. But we shouldn't be surprised that our ability to detect aspiration changes on the number of trials, right? You and I, we all aspirate at points. We all cough on liquids at some point. It just doesn't happen all the time. So our frequency is low, even though it still happens. And so, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Maybe it has to do with, you know, with flora, we are worried about radiation exposure. And so if we are thinking about the number of trials, maybe that kind of carries over into our practice patterns for fees. We're concerned about number of trials. Maybe it's, uh, it's not the most comfortable exams. So we're worried about patient comfort. So why stay in there longer than we need to? And I would say, this is why we need to stay in there longer. Um, so in order to, if we're using fees as the gold standard, we should be using it as the gold standard in a, a way that's uh, appropriate and, and adequate. Yeah. Okay. So we should be standard in terms of the number of trials that we are giving our patients. We should be standardized with ourselves, with our colleagues, and ideally across institutions and across research studies, right? So th those are bigger fish to fry, but start with yourself and start with your own institution and your, and your colleagues and friends. Bolus volume and consistencies also um, affect how frequently we see and how severely we see residue penetration and aspiration. So in terms of bolus volumes, I think as a nice review, um, it's thought that the 
average ship size for most people most of the time is about 20 milliliters. And there's a little bit of, of variation across um, body sizes, um, really not sex or gender once we control for things like body size. And that that patient preferred volume is probably a little bit lower when we use things like barium. Um, and a lot of Dr. Steele's newer work where she reports patient preferred volumes during her fluoros, those are about 10 to, 10 to 12 milliliters. So considering that healthy adults don't piecemeal, uh, this is kind of newer research that's coming out, I think um, from Dr. Steele among others, you know, when people do a patient preferred volume, meaning they're just, we give them their own SIP or they have their 10 or 20 ml SIP, healthy adults typically just do it in a single swallow and they're fine. They don't have to do any extra swallows. People with dysphagia, you know, I have a lot of experience with Parkinson's disease. There's a higher rates of piecemeal where people are performing multiple swallows in order to kind of get that down. Um, and so, you know, I encourage us to maybe be considering the role of asking individuals to do a single swallow. Um, if we are giving these standardized bolus volumes, like a 20 ml bolus, is the effect of that washed away if an individual fractions that into a 5 ml bolus, a 5 ml bolus, and a 10 ml bolus. We're not actually looking at a 20 ml bolus anymore. We're looking at three different bolus sizes. Of course, we start to, the more standardized we become, the further away we get from something that's extremely ecologically valid for that patient. And I think the ideal fees swallowing protocol has a balance of something that is a standard and maybe not the most valid, and then something that actually is a lot more functional for the patient. And I say this because if we are evaluating a patient and we're seeing them for therapy, right? We do our initial evaluation, we then take them through therapy, and then we see them post. We want to know that the changes after therapy is not because they're doing a smaller SIP, but in fact, that same SIP size, same consistency, um, there's actually changes in functional swallowing outcomes as a result of that, or changes in swallowing physiology if we're doing fluoro as a result of that. And so I, I recognize how artificial a standardized volume might be, um, but we balance that by also including patient preferred volumes. I would say if you are including patient preferred volumes, ideally you record what that size is and you, you track it over time. And there's easy ways to do this, maybe not the most accurate, but you know, plastic cups with measurement markers on them that you can buy from Amazon, really quick and dirty ways to um, assess uh, bolus volume. I, I love that you said that, James, because I think that's something that I've always been a big advocate for, because I think sometimes uh, my philosophy is that we don't get a very accurate, I don't think we get a very accurate idea of their functional swallow just by 10 or 20 mLs, especially when you have some of these patients that just go to chug town, you know, their, their sip is not a sip. Their sip is chug a whole glass of water. So for me, I think it's so important to be able to see, like you said, their functional swallow. I understand for, as a clinician and for our data, it's important to have these, you know, these specific measurements, but I, I, I I'm really passionate about making sure that we do do their average sip as well. Yeah, I, I think that we need, uh, clinically, I really think that we need both. And I don't think this is because, because I'm a researcher, right? I think that we, we need to compare apples to apples clinically, especially you know with my rehab lens to know that the patient's actually changing because of the therapy and not because of changes in bolus size. And so, um, and actually I'm, I'm completing, I've completed it, I'm writing up a study, it's done in Parkinson's and not healthy adults. But what we identified is that 
SIP size changes over time without any sort of intervention, right? So there, there's a little bit of variability from one test to another test. And so I think that's rationale for having a standardized bolus volume. But I think there's value in non-standardized bolus volumes, a patient-preferred volume. But I really think if you do that, it's important to record and identify what that average is so that you can see how that's changing over time as well in response to the therapy. Yeah. We should also be standardized in our uh, swallowing protocols in terms of the consistencies that we're using. So if we're using thin liquids and puddings and salad for one exam for a patient, we should probably do that those same set of consistencies for the following evaluation. And I think that's not surprising. We know functional swallowing outcome measures change as a result of consistency. Um, Dr. Hazelwood did a really nice study in 2017 where she looked at MBSIMP and looked at um, different tasks um, and how these different tasks each show us something different in terms of um, physiologic impairment. Um, and a lot of these outcomes changed as a result of bolus volume, but also bolus consistency. I clinically was in the routine of also including mixed consistencies. So like pineapple with pineapple juice, but there's really interesting literature to suggest that maybe that consistency is not necessary for most patients most of the time. Maybe if it's a, pa a patient-specific complaint, sure, include it. But it doesn't seem to be something that elicits kind of the riskiest swallowing behavior. Um, and we know that people volitionally propel liquid into their, into their throat when um, performing mixed consistency. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you don't use it, but I am personally, I'm questioning whether I would use it clinically just with some of the research. Dr. Humbert had a really nice article on this, um, looking at frozen consistencies, mixed consistencies. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of the swallowing protocol is the types of contrasts that we're using in our evaluation. Um, so the effects of color, coating, and opacity on liquids. And this is something I've actually, uh, the, the lab that I'm at, we've published on a couple of times now. So there isn't a lot of research looking at this specific question. Um, there's four studies now that I know of. The first was published in 2005 by Dr. Stephen Leder and, and his colleagues, where they compared the reliability ratings of residue and airway invasion, so penetration aspiration, for milk and pudding boluses with and without um, the use of blue food dye. And the results from this study did not identify any differences in inter or intra-rated reliability as a result of blue food dye. Um, so this is saying, well, maybe the color doesn't necessarily matter. It's important to note that they used milk and pudding, so these are opaque consistencies, probably would be different if it was water, let's say. The second study was published in 2016 by Stevie Marvin and colleagues at UW-Madison. And there they compared uh, examiner ratings of airway invasion between uh, 5, 10, and 90 ml milk boluses and some mildly thick boluses as well with and without the use of green dye in, uh, I think it was something like 40 adult inpatients. And in this study, they found that penetration was seen for 65 to 100% of the green dye trials, but only 48 to 74% of the non-dye trials. And that aspiration was seen for 0 to 21% of the green dye trials, but 5 to 13% of the non-dye trials. So this would suggest that certainly for penetration, maybe a little bit less so for aspiration, that the use of blue dye does, or the use of green dye in this case, does help us to identify the presence of penetration and probably aspiration as well. And they also saw that there was greater reliability with the use of green dye as opposed to um, not green dye. 
The third of the four studies was published by um, our group at Columbia University by Dr. Michelle Troche, Dr. Sarah Perry, and myself, where we compared barium water to blue dye and to green dye. So in this study, we compared ratings of penetration and aspiration for 10 ml boluses that were either um, white barium water, blue dyed water, or green dyed water. Um, I got a lot of questions as to why we used barium water, and it was just the way I was trained originally. Um, we used barium water in our in our feces. Um, and so to me, this was completely natural to do. <laughs> um, and it's since then, we've kind of changed our practice patterns a little bit. Um, but I'll start off with this, this study. So this was done in 30 people with neuro neurodegenerative diseases and suspected dysphagia. So they were undergoing kind of a routine fees exam where we presented 10 ml boluses of these um, barium, blue-dyed water, and green-dyed water consistencies and, and boluses. And we identified the presence versus absence of residue on the epiglottis, the laryngeal vestibule, vocal folds, subglottis, and also the frequency of abnormal PAS scores, which is kind of embedded in our residue ratings. And what we identified was that abnormal PAS scores, so scores of three or greater, and residue on the epiglottis, vestibule, vocal folds, and subglottis were all seen more frequently with the barium as, as opposed to the blue-dyed water and the green-dyed water. There was a tendency for blue-dyed water to be seen more frequently than green-dyed, but it was never statistically significant, and the, the difference was actually pretty small. And we also saw that the barium was the most reliable of these consistencies. Um, so here we are demonstrating that there is a pretty significant difference in our ability to detect airway invasion given the type of contrast that we're using. So... So we thought these results were interesting, this comparison between barium, green-dyed water, and blue-dyed water. And I actually had the pleasure of presenting these findings at the 2017 Dysphasia Research Society meeting um, in the format of a poster presentation. And what I liked about that is because it was a poster, I could talk one-on-one -on -one with clinicians and researchers as they were kind of viewing all these different posters. And I got a lot of questions like, why didn't I use milk um, as opposed to water? Why did I use barium water? Um, and what was it about the barium that made it so much more sensitive and reliable? Was it because it's not translucent? Was it because of this coating effect that I kind of anecdotally talked about in the discussion section? Was it because it's white and not blue or green? And so we had lots of questions. Um, and so I really felt compelled to do a follow-up study where we examined the effects of color coding and opacity on our ability to detect residue penetration and aspiration on fees. So this was a study that we did as a follow-up to be a little bit more comprehensive and answer some of these questions. Um, this was studied, or this was published in the Dysphasia Journal in 2020 by um, my colleagues, Zaina Saikali, Avery Dakin, Dr. Michelle Troche, and myself. So big shout out to them. The aim of the study was to compare the frequency with which we detected residue penetration and aspiration across liquids that differed based on color, coding, and opacity. And so we had 30 dysphagic adults who, again, had neurodegenerative diseases and underwent fees using five different 5ml thin liquid boluses, one time each, and they were randomized. So these boluses included a heavily concentrated white dyed water, a blue dyed water, naturally white non-dyed milk, blue milk, and barium water. And so all these boluses were um, rated blindly, meaning that us, the raters, did not know what it was that we were exactly rating. So the first thing we did 
was uh, characterize the frequency of a perceived coding effect. This was very subjective. We just watched a video clip and we said, does it look like there's this coding effect or not? And in the study, we provide an example of what that coding effect looks like versus not. And what we found was that the coding was detected for um, about 97% of the white dyed water boluses, followed by 80% of the barium boluses, 13% of the blue water, 7% for the white milk, and 0% for the blue milk. So we saw a lot of, we saw that the white dyed water and the barium were much more likely to exhibit this coding effect, which is what we anecdotally thought in the previous study, than the other types of liquids. So then that brought us to our primary research question of assessing the effects of color coding and opacity. So to assess the effects of color, we compared blue milk to white milk. And we identified that blue milk was seen more frequently in the piriforms and on the epiglottis when compared to white milk. So this suggests that there might be a small effect of color on pharyngeal residue, but maybe not penetration aspiration with maybe blue being seen more frequently than white. And I think this is a little surprising. I thought it would probably be the opposite of anything. And so with, with all these results, we should still be critical, looking at this critically, right? These were, we're not forcing people to aspirate or penetrate. It's just kind of chance findings, but we, it was all randomized. And so we think through randomization, we kind of mitigated some of this potential effect of a chance finding or not, but we still you know, need to consider that. To assess the effects of opacity, so whether something was translucent or not, blue milk was compared to blue water. Now, as a side note, we used milk as the opaque liquid because that's what's used pretty frequently clinically. But I'm honestly a bigger fan now of water with just a couple drops of white dye. Not a lot. And I think it's, it's easier. You don't have to worry about refrigeration. So that's just a, a quick tip for you all. But this was studied with blue milk versus um, blue water. And what we found was that similarly, residue is seen more frequently in the piriforms and on the epiglottis for the blue milk as opposed to the blue water. So maybe something that's a little bit more opaque is a little bit easier to see. Lastly, the effects of coating were examined by comparing the barium water to the heavily concentrated white dyed water, so not just a couple of drops, but a decent amount, and the naturally white milk. What we thought, saw was that the use of barium resulted in more frequent detection of residue on the piriforms, epiglottis, vestibule, and uh, greater detection of unsafe swallows, so the PASs of three or greater. That's you know, debatable if it's unsafe or not, but that's what we say in the research world. And we also saw that the use of white dyed water resulted in more frequent detection of residue in the piriforms, epiglottis, vestibule, vocal folds, and subglottis and those PAS scores of three or greater. So we're seeing bigger difference with white dyed water when compared to milk. And when we actually compared white dyed water to the barium, so these two different uh, liquids that have a decent amount of coating effect, we saw that residue was seen more frequently in the vestibule, vocal folds, subglottis, and those abnormal PAS scores for the white dyed water when compared to the barium water. So this would suggest that coating actually has a pretty large effect on our ability to detect functional swallowing impairments with white dyed water potentially being like the quote unquote best type of liquid followed by followed by the barium and we think this is because the barium if you don't like stir it right before you give it to a patient it can settle over time whereas the white dyed water when you um, mix it up it tends to stay pretty um, uh, pretty well mixed for long periods of time so we conclude that all three of these properties, color, coating, and opacity, do affect our ability, but coating seems to be like definitely the biggest factor. 
But I think something to keep in mind clinically is that if everything that you're using has a coding effect, it's going to gunk up the camera. So what I do actually is I, I rotate, right? We, we need five or six trials of a given consistency. So rotating between a something that coats versus something that's opaque but doesn't coat and kind of going back and forth like that is what I do. And then I put more weight on um, potentially the things that we're seeing in terms of the coding consistencies. And while we are on the topic of fees, I want to take a quick break to tell you about one of our wonderful sponsors, PatCon Medical. Are you trying to start a fees program at your facility or are you thinking about going out on your own with mobile fees? Here are two simple steps you should take right away. Number one, listen to episode 164 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast where I speak with Kristoff from PatCon Medical about purchasing fees equipment. Step two, get in touch with PatCon as they will assist you based on your individual needs. You can reach them at info at patcommedical.com or go to patcommedical.com for more information. That's P-A-T-C-O-M-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com for more information. All right, let's get back to the episode. Did you, um, I have a million questions. Yes. Okay. Um, question, did you did you actually talk about this with Dr. Susan Butler? I talked about, um, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I get to that here or if I already missed it. So Susan, Dr. Susan Butler came up to me. I was literally starstruck and I like didn't know what to say. Um, when I uh, had that poster presentation at DRS that yeah. I was telling you about. And so she was, uh, well, I don't know, wait, where, where are you getting at with this? No. So, so what's interesting is I interviewed her for a podcast. She did a podcast with me probably maybe two years ago. And she talked about the study where there was a much higher frequency with the milk. Mm-hmm. And she just had some really fascinating theories about why that might have been. So I just, I would love to be yeah. a fly on the wall for a discussion between the two of you, because it would be so fascinating to hear what yeah. you both found throughout that. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. So she has done a collection of research studies, which have compared water and milk. And in one study, she actually looked at barium as well. And, you know, I definitely, definitely don't want to speak for her, but from our conversation at DRS, and I think in some of her discussion sections of these different research studies, you know, they hypothesize, they don't know, but they're hypothesizing that um, milk is actually being aspirated more frequently or penetrating more frequently into the laryngeal vestibule than water, because there's the thought that we have maybe special water receptors in our pharynx that elicits a more kind of quicker and more robust kind of swallow response. You know, how do we know that this is actually the swallow response versus our eyeballs? Yeah, and I think a way to get at that, which I just wish I would have thought about that before doing this study, because I I don't (laughs) want to do another study like this. Um, But is I think the way to get at that is what I was talking about with the opaque liquid of comparing a water with a couple drops of white dye to the heavily concentrated white dyed water, right? And so now we're comparing not milk, but a water-based consistency to another water-based consistency. And I should say that with this, um, this 2020 study and the one from 2018 or 2019 that we previously did, uh, a lot of our ability to detect functional swallowing impairments, especially re- uh, aspiration, is going to vary a little bit based off of our 
our fees equipment. So how good or bright of a light source we had, maybe like the, um, the quality of the camera, is it a distal chip versus a fiber optic scope? And so it's possible that these findings maybe might not generalize to people with fantastic equipment with the brightest light source, the greatest definition of all time. It might not make that big of a difference. Um, in which case, if, if that is the case, maybe it's then they're being detected because it is the receptors in the pharynx. I don't know. Um, and I think there's just always a million research questions, but yeah. So I think that um, that's something to consider when looking at that research is maybe it's an issue with visibility across those different studies, or maybe it's differences in terms of our anatomy and we are actually aspirating more frequently. Do you feel like you have more questions than answers after this? Always, literally, literally <laughs> always. Um, um, there's just so like many questions. <laughs> so I think in terms of the swallowing protocols that we use as ourselves as clinicians with our colleagues, we need to be really standardized. Um, So we need to think about what is our standard protocol? Are we gonna have the first swallow of every fees being a held cute swallow and no other held cute swallows after that? Are we doing standardized bolus volumes, consistencies? And then what is the sequence with which we are presenting these boluses, especially as relates to um, our our, um, contrast? So maybe we present six liquids and we rotate between heavily concentrated white dyed water and like a blue opaque water. And then we kind of go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Because all this is going to influence how frequently um, we see functional swallowing impairments. And then the last thing I want to leave us with um, just a few minutes is differences in interpretation methods within and across people for feces. So there's ambiguity, I think, and inconsistencies related to specific anatomic and temporal boundaries within which we rate pharyngeal residue penetration and aspiration. I think there's ambiguities and inconsistencies across exam types, meaning that how we rate fees is different than how we rate fluoro. But even people who perform fees, we all kind of interpret things maybe a little bit differently. And so you know, I think it would be great if we got a consensus panel at some point to come together and come up with a standard. But here I have an example of a bunch of different definitions that have been reported on the literature as it relates to penetration. So we have definitions that are a little bit more vague, um, especially if we try to translate it to fees exams. So entry of bolus into the larynx as penetration, into the airway as penetration, like what, what, how do we define this on fees? Into the airway inlet, maybe we have a little bit clearer of a, a conception of that, but how do we actually define that on fees? On the laryngeal surface of the epiglottis, that's pretty clear, although um, do we all agree with that? The rim of the epiglottis, what exactly is the rim? That probably changes from um, person to person. The upper border of the epiglottis, including the entire face of the epiglottis. Um, We have some definitions saying it's in the laryngeal vestibule, which for me, I don't think of the laryngeal vestibule as including that floppy free end of the epiglottis, but at the point of the epiglottic petiole. Crossing the upper plane of the laryngeal additus and or where the arytenoids would meet the epiglottis, hypothetically speaking. So you can imagine that if one group of clinicians or researchers are saying penetration occurs 
once it's in the laryngeal vestibule, they're going to have lower rates of what they're determining as penetration compared to someone who's saying anything on the, on the epiglottis is penetration, right? And so that's going to affect us clinically. It's also going to affect us how we generalize findings from the research in terms of understanding what's normal. And so we need to get a better idea of what these definitions mean and how they actually translate. No wonder everybody's confused. Yep. And I think we have, I think we have a similar situation. Um, and, and I'm going to like be dodging bullets for this. Um, I, I really understand this right here, but we have, um, we have a pretty clear definition of what is aspiration. Here, there's a lot less variability in terms of aspiration, um, at least in the United States. So in the United States, we define aspiration as below the level of vocal folds or below the glottis. And I do think other countries actually define aspiration as on the vocal folds, um, but for the most part, we're defining aspiration as below the glottis or below the level of vocal folds. Yet very often clinically, we're presented with a situation where we see residue between the level of the vocal folds. It's not yet past the lowest point of the vocal folds. It's at the level, it's below the superior surface, but it's still at the level of the glottis. And yet very often on fees, we consider that aspiration. And I'm not necessarily sure that's consistent with the definition of aspiration. And I think from like an anatomic standpoint, it doesn't to me, it doesn't make sense that it'd be considered aspiration. It's the same sensory innervation as the supraglottis, right? So we're not expecting cough response to this. Um, we are, it's giving us the similar information in terms of swallowing physiology, in terms of airway closure. And I think on fluoro, if we saw something at the level of the vocal folds here on fluoro, we'd probably say that's penetration to the vocal folds and not aspiration. So I'm not saying someone has to do one thing or another. I'm saying I consider it below, but it is something that we kind of need to all get on the same page about. And that again is going to influence how frequently a researcher or a clinician is reporting aspiration um, in their findings. And then the very last thing is there's ambiguity and inconsistencies in terms of our temporal boundaries for within which we rate residue penetration aspiration. You know, on fluoro, we are um, relatively bounded by radiation time. So we turn the fluoro off like a second after the swallow is finished. Fees, it continues. We sometimes have minutes between swallows. And so, you know, are we saying aspiration occurs if it occurs a minute after the swallow and it's from residue? And I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think that we just need to have a standardized set of rules and then we we know how to kind of deviate from the rules and we're a lot more transparent in terms of our findings. Um, so I would say there's a need to standardize fees interpretation by having clearly defined anatomic and temporal boundaries within which to rate our functional swallowing outcomes. So our key takeaways from this, this talk. Fees seems to be the optimal exam for examining functional swallowing outcomes. Our functional swallowing outcomes can vary based off of practice patterns, swallowing protocols, and interpretation methods. So we should use those pieces of information to interpret um, normal variability findings in the research and to interpret what we are seeing on our own exams. And then as a result, we should be much more standardized in terms of how we are performing feces and how we are interpreting feces by controlling things like an use of anesthetics, vasoconstrictors, and lubrication, by controlling for the number of trials, the types of boluses, and the types of colorants that we use, and controlling for how exactly we are defining our anatomic and temporal boundaries for rating functional swallowing outcomes. So that's everything. Ooh, I love it. I love it so much. I, you know, I, I, everybody knows there's such a need for the standardized 
these protocol or whatever. And hopefully the wonderful people of the world are working on something like this. Yes. I think that's what's so difficult is that you read one really good clinician's fees report and you read another really good clinician's fees report and they're just drastically different. And it leaves the treating clinicians like, well, what's important? Like, is the whiteout important? Mm -hmm. Is this important? You know, and there's just so many, like we said, just raises so many more questions about what's important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think the more that we can in our reports or in our research studies, be a, a little bit more descriptive about what it is we are exactly doing. I think the more transparency, the better. And it's not to say that there is a right way or a wrong way, but if we can be transparent, we know how to then interpret findings in a little bit more of an individual basis, um, clinically and, and from a research perspective. Great. Awesome, James. I love this so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for, I mean, putting all that together. And this was so comprehensive. And I think this is just going to be so helpful to so many people. I hope so. I hope so. And I'm, I'm here as a resource if anyone has questions. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of want to help improve clinical practice. Um, not the expert on everything, but I, I do enjoy reading the research. So I, I try my best to stay on top of things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I super appreciate you. Of course. I appreciate you too. All right. Thanks, James. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.